think of President-elect Joe Biden right now as George Clooney. All right, before we get started, nobody's on the line here yet. In Ocean's Eleven. What I'm about to propose to you is both highly lucrative and highly dangerous. Okay, maybe not the dangerous part or the lucrative part, but with the inauguration less than 50 days out, it's time for Biden to put together a team to manage everything from the military and the economy to U.S. foreign policy and dozens and dozens of federal agencies. That doesn't seem like your particular brand of vodka. Help yourself to as much food as you like and have a safe journey. No hard feelings. Otherwise, come with me. Good afternoon. We're coming on the air right now because President-elect Joseph Biden is about to introduce his national security team. Announcing his first cabinet picks, a whole list of them. The first members of his cabinet. Notable for a lot of firsts there, but also notable that these are people with a lot of experience in government. Over the last few days, President-elect Biden has been filling out key roles in his cabinet. Now, we don't have time to cover all of them. But we did want to spotlight several picks that Biden has made to his national security and foreign policy team. Between looking at their backgrounds and the challenges they're likely to face, it's actually possible to get a glimpse of what might be in store for U.S. foreign policy in the years to come. To help us out, we called up someone who knows a lot of the people likely to be taking on big jobs in January. I'm Michelle Flournoy, and I'm currently the co-founder and managing partner of West Exec Advisors. Flournoy has held top jobs at the Pentagon during the Clinton and Obama administrations. And according to a number of media reports, is in the running to head up the Pentagon as the next Secretary of Defense. Flournoy said she hopes to have a chance to get back into public service. But as for whether she was about to get a phone call... I wish I knew. Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) Flournoy might be waiting on the sidelines for now, but she had a lot to say about the people being named to top roles like Secretary of State, special envoy for climate change, and director of national intelligence. That conversation and a look at two current foreign policy crises the Biden team is likely to inherit are coming up. Today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern Mutual. No matter what your situation is, their financial advisors can guide you through it. Get matched at northwesternmutual.com slash the skim. Welcome to Skim This. This week, we're taking a look at the government that President-elect Joe Biden is forming. It's like a fantasy football draft of people in suits. We'll take a look at who's been picked to fill top roles, what they tell us about how Biden might govern, and what contrasts are already being pointed out between the new guys and gals and the Trump administration. Then we'll look at the latest drama with Iran and new fighting in Ethiopia, two international crises that could easily spill over to the Biden era. Later, we'll explain a drama of a slightly different sort, America's 2020 Christmas tree shortage and how to keep your Fraser, Douglas, or Balsam fur happy if you couldn't resist putting it up extra early this year. But first, the U.S. has a brand new plan for how to prioritize who gets a COVID-19 vaccine once one gets approved. We've got the details. All right, let's do it. This week, a COVID-19 vaccine went from being possible to being real in the UK. The first coronavirus vaccine has been approved for use in the UK. The UK has approved the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine. It will first go to medical workers and elderly people in nursing homes with vaccinations set to start. It's going to happen as early as next week. 
The UK government has ordered 40 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine, which it will potentially start administering as early as December 7th. This development is a big deal, since the UK is now the first Western country to approve a COVID vaccine. We should be fair and say Russia and China have already approved their own vaccines, though some red flags have been raised about whether the approval process in those cases was a bit rushed. But Britain's drug approval process is more similar to the one in the US, which can mean the US is not far behind on approving a vaccine too. In fact, the FDA is expected to review and potentially approve Pfizer's vaccine next week, on December 10th. A similar review for a different vaccine developed by the drug company Moderna will come the following week on December 17th. If both or either is approved for emergency use in the US, talk about a nice early holiday present. But as the FDA decides about vaccine approval, the CDC took a major step this week towards solving a different problem. Who will get the first doses once a vaccine is ready? Therefore, the motion passes. Phase 1A should be offered to both healthcare personnel and residents of long-term care facilities. If all you want for Christmas is a big old dose of the new COVID vaccine, Santa might not deliver it in time this year because whether or not you're eligible is going to depend on which group you're in. Think of this as kind of like boarding an airplane. Remember that. First up, boarding group 1A. These are the people who deserve those first-class seats and early boarding the most. In this case, it's not families with small children, but healthcare workers. Everyone from emergency room and hospital workers to EMTs, all 21 million of them will be first to be vaccinated. And along with them, another important group, roughly 3 million elderly people living in nursing homes and care facilities. That's because roughly 40% of COVID-19 deaths currently occur in those facilities. Deaths a vaccine could help prevent. Group 1A could be getting the vaccine as soon as it's approved. And with estimates that enough doses of the two leading vaccines to treat 20 million people could be distributed by the end of the year, Group 1A could be on the vaccine plane pretty soon. From there, the CDC is still putting the finishing touches on the rest of its boarding plan. But it's pretty safe to say that Group 1B could start gathering their carry-ons and forming a single file line in early 2021. The folks in 1B? This group includes teachers along with other essential workers such as firefighters, sanitation and transportation workers, the police, and people in the food and agriculture sector. Okay, that's a lot of people, but we're still a ways away from getting to general boarding. Because our final priority group, 1C, includes a lot of Americans too. Like adults ages 65 and up, or who have high-risk medical conditions. We should note, the advisory committee didn't dig into the specifics of groups 1B and 1C this week, but that's kind of the direction they're heading in. As for the immediate next steps, the CDC's gotta accept the Phase 1A recommendation before handing things off to the states, who will have a lot of the final say in how vaccines are prioritized down the road. For more updates on that and the latest on a COVID-19 vaccine, Subscribe to our daily newsletter at theskim.com. Got a minute? There was a big question that came up in the news this week. Can President Trump preemptively pardon himself and his family before he leaves office? Here's the answer in 60 seconds. 
Pardons let presidents show mercy by reducing prison sentences or invalidating prosecutions for federal crimes. Most presidents issue them for crimes other people already committed, but preemptive pardons are allowed for those who haven't been charged yet or may never be. But could Trump pardon himself? It's never been tried, but political scientist Stephen Farnsworth told CTV it kind of defies logic. You shouldn't be a judge in your own case. Meaning courts, as in the Supreme Court, might need to weigh in. Though they're confused too. Here was its newest judge, Amy Coney Barrett, when quizzed on self-pardons during her confirmation. So far as I know, that question has never been litigated. Trump's other option involves using the 25th Amendment to make VP Mike Pence the acting president and letting Pence do the pardoning, at least at the federal level. Pardons can't stop prosecutions at the state and local level, so even presidential pardons have their limits. How do we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. Real talk. We're all feeling a financial squeeze these days, and we're all wondering, what's my next step? Good news. Northwestern Mutual Financial Advisors can show you. They'll actually listen to what's important to you, answer your questions in a non-jargony way, and work with you to make a financial plan so you can get to where you want to be today and tomorrow. Don't wait. Get matched with an advisor at northwesternmutual.com slash the skim today. At noon Eastern on January 20th, 2021, less than 50 days from now, President-elect Joe Biden and a new team of government officials will get to work. Before we look at the future Biden administration, let's take a look back at the early days of the Trump presidency and some things Team Biden might be keeping in mind. The Brookings Institution, a think tank, has tracked White House HR moves going back to Ronald Reagan. Their focus? Looking at how long people in what they call the presidential A-team stuck around. And what they found was that in Trump's first year in office, 35% of people in top jobs left. A lot of them hadn't worked with Trump before and most either resigned or quote, resigned under pressure. A more gentle way of saying they were fired. There are some high profile examples of President Trump praising the credentials of his staff only to have some big falling outs with them. Trump's first Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, went from having, quote, broad experience and deep understanding of geopolitics to being called, quote, dumb as a rock. Yikes. Overall, the year one job turnover rate in Trump's White House was nearly double that of the next closest president, Reagan. And this trend has continued throughout Trump's presidency. And as we'll explain in a minute, Biden seems to be picking people he's more familiar with than Trump did. President-elect Biden still has a number of key roles to fill, but his picks so far, especially on his national security and foreign policy teams, show signs of being loyal to Biden, familiar with one another, and familiar with the jobs they're assuming. Because of that experience, there is muscle memory here of people who know what it looks like when the process works well. That's Michelle Flournoy. You know, yes, we've had four years of relative chaos, but I think bringing people back through the door who know how that process works, and may even have ideas on how to make it better. Let's get specific. One person Flournoy thinks this applies to is Anthony Blinken, Biden's pick to serve as America's top diplomat as Secretary of State. Blinken was Biden's national security advisor during his days as VP, 
and then became a top State Department official where he built even more working relationships. Because of his prior roles at the State Department and the NSC, he, and with the vice president when he was vice president, he knows, you know, the world of foreign leaders. He has deep relationships. He's deeply respected. Biden made the same point when he announced Blinken's nomination last week. No one's better prepared, in my view. And he starts off with the kind of relationships around the world that many of his predecessors have had to build over the years. Another job where Biden is prioritizing existing relationships is his pick for the first-ever special envoy for climate change, John Kerry. As Obama's Secretary of State, Kerry set the record for the most miles flown after visiting 91 countries and negotiating some key international deals. The world would know that with one of my closest friends, John Kerry, he's speaking for America on one of the most pressing threats of our time. So between Tony Blinken as Secretary of State, John Kerry as climate envoy, or Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the former top U.S. diplomat for Africa, who's been selected to be U.N. ambassador, Biden is picking people with existing relationships around the world. He's also choosing people who know who's who within the government and can navigate a bureaucracy. Brilliant. Can talk literature and theoretical physics, fixing cars, flying planes, running a bookstore cafe all in a single conversation, because she's done all that. That's Biden talking about Avril Haines, his pick to be the next director of national intelligence. In her new job, Haines will coordinate 17 of America's intelligence agencies, a position that could lend itself to someone with a range of experience and an understanding of how government works. Haines could fit that bill, between her unique hobbies, law degree, and time spent at the State Department and CIA. Avril Haines is a great example of someone who combines a legal background, a Hill background, and an intelligence background. And so she is the perfect person to be able to sit with the president and the vice president and say, what do we know? What do we not know? What do we need to find out? You know, very fact-based, very analytical, very thorough. In addition to being a Jill of all trades, if confirmed, Haynes would also be the first woman to serve as Director of National Intelligence. During the campaign, Biden signed a pledge to achieve gender parity on his national security team. And he looks like he's on his way to achieving that. Flournoy says that's the culmination of a gradual change in the U.S. government that she's seen play out firsthand. One of the most exciting things that's happened kind of quietly in the last 20 years is the development of this whole pipeline of incredibly qualified women in national security. When I was in the Clinton administration, we had a women's leaders lunch and literally eight women sat at one table in the cafeteria and everybody stared at us like, why are all of them sitting together having lunch? Today, if you brought all the qualified women who could serve in the Pentagon together, they would overflow that executive dining room. You could fill multiple levels uh, at the Pentagon with qualified female candidates. So that's 20, 25 years of mentoring, cultivating, growing, consciously, you know, working on that pipeline. Biden has also announced an all-female White House senior communications team and the first ever woman to lead the U.S. Treasury Department. And while it's too early to say what percent of Biden's A-team of advisors will be women, he's looking to improve upon Trump's record. According to Brookings, during Trump's first year in office, women made up just 23% of his top staff, the lowest first-year rate seen in Washington since 1989. And Flournoy says 
boosting that number is about more than symbolism. It's not just political window dressing. It's not just a moral imperative. It actually has to do with performance, because if you look at all the business literature, study after study shows that the more diverse the leadership team, the higher performing the organization and the better quality of decisions that you get. And I've seen that in the situation room. When you get a more diverse group around that table, the discussion gets elevated. The questions come in from different angles. People are in their roles, bringing their lived experience to the table, and you get better decisions um, out of that process. So what's the skim? Exactly who's going to fill every key role in the incoming Biden administration isn't clear. But a few early signs are already emerging, like a focus on picking people familiar with their new jobs, people who've worked with Biden before, and who've worked with each other. Women and minorities are also being picked for top positions. Though we should say, not everyone's satisfied with the diversity of Biden's picks just yet. Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina, a prominent Biden supporter and a long-serving black lawmaker in Washington, said last week that Biden hadn't named enough black appointees to top positions. Some prominent voices in the Latino and Asian American and Pacific Islander communities have made similar statements. Finally, the order in which Biden has rolled out his picks tells us something that could be relevant as his team confronts challenges around the world. Ariane Tabatabai, a Middle East expert at the German Marshall Fund, says, the fact that Biden's announced his choices to be America's top diplomats before announcing America's top generals sends an important signal. So the fact that, you know, the Pentagon is sort of taking a backseat here is pretty significant. And we know, again, from the track record of his team, that this is a team that is very much eager to put diplomacy first, which doesn't mean that they won't necessarily consider military action in um, cases, but it's going to take a bit of a backseat. So now that you know who is going to be making foreign policy decisions come early next year, let's talk about two places they're likely to be keeping their eyes on. The first is Ethiopia, where there's a military operation in the country's northern region that's been ongoing since November. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has ordered the military to launch its final offensive against rebel leaders. It's clear that there is a serious humanitarian situation evolving. Before we get into who is fighting who and what they're fighting about, let's first give some context. Like, who's in charge? The leader of Ethiopia is Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. His party has been running the country since 2018. Before he became the PM, the country was run by a different party for quite a few decades. The old regime, which was dominated by a very narrow political party called the, the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which hails from a regional state in the far north of the country and has about 5% of Ethiopia's population in it. That's Bronwyn Bruton. She's the Director of Programs and Studies at the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, a DC think tank. And she told us that even though the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF, is no longer the ruling party of Ethiopia, they still have influence and weapons. And over the past few months, the party has been butting heads with Prime Minister Abiy. That tension came to a boiling point last month when the TPLF made some serious moves, which Abiy's government says include attacking a military base and trying to steal equipment. That didn't sit well with Abiy. He launched a military offensive in Northern Ethiopia's Tigray region to retaliate and say, hey, you're not the ones in charge here. 
That weeks-long offensive has killed hundreds of people and displaced tens of thousands, which has some people arguing over how to actually define what's going on. One of the interesting things about the conflict is that people can't seem to agree on how even to define it. If you look at the international press, they keep saying it's a civil war, it's going to spread throughout the region, it's going to last for years, this is going to take the whole Horn of Africa down with it. And if you listen to what the narrative inside of Ethiopia, the majority of Ethiopians and certainly the Ethiopian government, they are saying this is an internal uprising. It's a law and order police matter. We're going to deal with it quietly and quickly. Definitions aside, this fighting has gotten the attention of the international community. And now a lot of countries, including the U.S., are saying the fighting needs to stop. So why is the rest of the world making such a big deal about a conflict in just one corner of a country? Bruden told us geography has a lot to do with it. Ethiopia is geostrategically in a very important spot on the globe. One of the reasons this conflict is so important to the international community, Ethiopia has actually been uh, sort of a bastion of stability. It's been the rock in the middle of the turbulent Horn of Africa Sea. So when there's the potential for more instability in a region that's recently been pretty stable, that's cause for concern and a bunch of diplomatic phone calls, especially because that instability could have a ripple effect. If Ethiopia becomes unstable, you're looking at an arc of instability that's gonna go from Somalia through Ethiopia, up through Yemen, across the Horn of Africa, and into the Maghreb Sahel where you have Boko Haram and all of these other actors, it's, it's gonna be I'm not exaggerating when I say that. If Ethiopia really fell, it would be Armageddon. Hence, the international community trying to get involved. But those phone calls aren't always welcome. Because as we mentioned earlier, the US's foreign policy strategy and specifically how it deals with diplomatic relations has been a little all over the map. No pun intended. So now the Ethiopian government is saying, we got this, no need to get involved here. I don't know that they're really in a mood to hear from the U.S. government how should, they should be handling their internal affairs. So the U.S. is really not in a good place to, to intervene as a credible actor in this conflict, unfortunately. What I see playing out is a little bit of a, you know, it, this is the region taking care of its own issues. The TPLF was in power for so many years because it was supported by the West. And the Ethiopian people rose up and they removed them. And now, the Ethiopian government is dealing with something that is a profound security threat to all of us. And they are taking the lead on it. And Abi is saying, no, UN, you cannot negotiate. No, United States, you cannot negotiate. No, African Union. And that's something that is, is profoundly uncomfortable, I think, for Western leaders who are used to stepping in and telling African nations how to solve their problems. Over the weekend, Prime Minister Abiy declared victory in the region, but not so fast. The TPLF said, that's news to us, and they're calling on Abiy to withdraw his troops. And because telephone lines and internet connection are blocked in the region, people have had a hard time validating his declaration of victory. One thing's for certain, though. The situation in northern Ethiopia is something leaders from around the world, and especially in Washington, are paying attention to. Because this kind of conflict has the potential to destabilize an entire region, an outcome countries, including the U.S., are hoping to avoid.
Speaking of the U.S. being heavily invested in certain outcomes, it's time to talk about Iran, where you may have read about a certain assassination that seemed almost like a movie plot. Last Friday, it unfolded like this. So on Friday, uh, we received some news that a top Iranian nuclear scientist that he had been killed in a in the countryside outside of Tehran. He was uh, apparently going to visit his in-laws with his wife, and um, there was some security, of course, that was around him. But uh, there was an explosion that happened, and uh, after a couple of hours, uh, we got confirmation from the Iranian government that he had indeed been targeted. That's Ariane Tabatabai, who we introduced to you earlier. She told us that the scientist who was killed was one of the masterminds of Iran's military nuclear program, a program Iran claims it disbanded in 2003. The countryside attack certainly wasn't random. So who carried it out? All of the signs appear to be pointing to Israel. That's because the ambush does have the markings of Israel's spy agency. And Israel has attacked Iran's nuclear program and its scientists before. Right now, Israel hasn't taken responsibility for the assassination, but it's an aggressive move that Iranians aren't taking lightly. So it is a pretty significant action in terms of, you know, first of all, this is, again, a very high-level target, very valuable target, killed right outside of Tehran um, on Iranian soil. And while this is something that happened on Iranian soil, the implications of this kind of attack go much further. It kind of takes the, the sort of tension that we've seen between the U.S., between, well, the U.S., of course, but also Israel and, and Iran to a new level. Let's back up and break down what those tensions are. As a reminder, Israel and Iran don't get along. Israel doesn't buy that Iran's nuclear program is for peaceful purposes. And it also isn't a fan of how other countries have dealt with Iran's nuclear capabilities. Specifically, Israel has taken issue with the Iran nuclear deal from 2015, a deal that President Obama brokered to place limits on the nuclear technology that Iran could develop and stockpile, while allowing Iran to have enough of that technology for its energy needs. And the deal also lifted some serious sanctions, giving the Iranians some much-needed economic relief. Israeli officials weren't a fan of the deal at all, especially because it meant their less-than-friendly neighbor would still retain some nuclear technology. And they weren't the only ones who took issue with that agreement. President Trump withdrew the U.S. from that deal after he took office, saying it didn't go far enough to stop Iran from building a nuclear weapon. That move is in line with the Trump administration's more aggressive stance towards Iran, which included assassinating one of Iran's top generals earlier this year. But as a reminder, there's a new administration coming to town, and President-elect Joe Biden is looking to get the U.S. back into the agreement, something Israel isn't too happy about. And now this well-timed assassination last week has thrown a wrench into Biden's plans. We have 50 days to go until the Biden-Harris administration takes power, and a lot can go wrong in 50 days, and a lot can make it a lot more difficult for President-elect Biden, uh, come January 20th, to return to the nuclear deal. Some of the things that could go down in a very short period of time, Israel could continue to take action against Iran, and Iran could retaliate in a number of different ways. Combine the most recent assassination, the existing bad blood between the U.S. and Iran, and some reports that Trump is considering a strike on Iran before he leaves office, and, well, 
That could all make the Biden administration's plans to jump back into diplomacy a whole lot trickier. Before we go today, we want to talk Christmas trees. For completely understandable reasons, people are anxious to get the holiday spirit started a bit early this year. But there's one problem. There might not be enough trees to go around for everyone. Turns out, a lot of early reservations and higher demand for real trees are leading to a Christmas tree shortage across the US. Okay, it's sad, but not that sad. And the pandemic isn't the only cause of this. The shortage goes back to the 2008 Great Recession, when low demand meant Christmas tree farmers weren't planting as many trees. Fun fact, most Christmas trees take eight to 10 years to fully grow. So some tree farms are still playing catch up. Now, suppliers who still have trees available are increasing prices. But if you did happen to pick up your Christmas tree early, the struggle to keep it fresh till Christmas could become very real. And if this is your first time ringing in the holidays with a tree that didn't come straight from a box in your attic, there are a few things you should probably know to make sure that December can still be the most wonderful time of the year. First, always make sure that your tree is in a sturdy stand and that the base is filled with enough water. This is something that you'll want to check daily because if the water becomes too low, the trunk will seal itself off with sap and your tree will stop absorbing water, which could get you on the naughty list. If that does happen though, you can cut an inch off the bottom of the tree to get it back to drinking. You know, just grab that tree saw you store in your studio apartment. Second, pet safety. There are plenty of videos out there of mischievous dogs and cats taking Christmas into their own paws. It might be funny, but it's a huge hazard. So if leave the tree alone is too challenging a command to teach your pet, try to keep your tree in a safe corner and tape down electrical wires or cover them with a rug to prevent your animal from getting tangled and taking the tree down along the way. As your tree starts to shed pine needles or tinsel, be sure to clean that up since that'll upset your pet's stomach and could lead to a not so pleasant gift under the tree. And third, decorate with care and with fire resistant ornaments if you can. Nearly half of Christmas tree fires have to do with faulty electricity. So try to place your tree away from any heat source and close to an outlet to minimize the need for extension cords, which can overheat if overloaded with too many lights. And when you leave the room, always unplug your lights. If you happen to be looking for some unique COVID Christmas decorations that may be a bit too on the nose, there are now plenty of ornaments available from mask-wearing Santas to COVID baubles and even toilet paper. If that's the way you want to cap 2020, you do you. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Thursday. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 